Fish don't know they're wet. The water is just their environment. Why would they question it, and what does it reveal about their own watery world when they're removed from it? Let's talk about the fish out of water trope. Welcome to the Worldcraft Club podcast, a show for writers, game masters, and other storytellers who want to create rich, immersive settings that will draw their audience back time and time again. I'm your host, James. The Worldcraft Club has had a long history of loving a good trope. After all, it's not the trope, it's how you use it. We're always on the lookout for new tools and techniques to add to our growing repertoire. And today, we're looking at the fish out of water trope with Ross Bazell. So my name's Ross Bazell. I have written best-selling series Legends Online, which is a lit RPG that's uh, in the fantasy world. Also the best-selling series Legacy Earth. Y'all may remember him from our last interview, linked in the show notes. Here's how the fish out of water trope works. You take a character out of the space they find familiar and comforting, and instead place them somewhere alien. In this case, a powerful alien prince with a lot of book knowledge about Earth finds himself on Earth with an important mission and has to manage basset hounds and human idioms. In the process of this, he develops a greater understanding of Earth, while we as readers grow to better understand the homeworld of Boron. This is the part that I think is actually really interesting and innovative. What do we learn about one culture when it is forced into another? While the fish-out-of-water trope is a common one, it's a useful tool to explore someone's environment in reverse by contrasting it with our own. I'll let Ross explain. So this this particular set of world-building is the deepest world building I think I will ever do in my life because it started it when I was 14. <laughs> so it is, it yeah. is literally, oh my gosh. it's coming up on 20 years that, that I have been developing this world. And um, the way that I did it was, you know, you've got in fiction and everything, you've got aliens visit people, uh, humans, humans go into alien worlds, you've got the whole like alien seeding humanity. And what I wanted to what I wanted to kind of explore was an alien race that is humanoid and really the only thing that is actually, they look exactly like humans. And the only thing that separates them from humans is this very specific ability. And yeah. when a plague ravages the planet and takes away that very specific ability, they, the people who have the ability taken start dying because the planet literally starts consuming their life essence. So they get sent oh. to a world where they get sent to a world that can sustain them. And it happens to be earth. They're not alone on earth. So they look mm -hmm. human, but it's like at the beginning of human history, like one of the first things in, in my world, one of the first things that they witness is Cain leaving the garden. Yeah. Um, because like, if, if you read in the Bible, it says, you know, when Cain left the garden, there were cities, there were civilizations. I was like, hmm, I wonder where they came from. So I made it this alien race. Alien race. Um, yeah. And um, kind of explore the idea of the seed of humanity, even though humanity is its own race. A lot of the lore and like the technology and all the stuff was right there with the first generation, but then get lost over time because they don't have the technology to rebuild what they had at their on their home world and yeah, so like yeah. you get 
like for example on the alien world you have you've got like dragons you've got monsters all this other stuff and it translates over to mythology here when yeah. the reality is just kid i want to tell you a story about whenever i was your age it's almost like uh, somebody from our age getting sent back to the stone age and trying to relay what it's like here now i mean you take this back 500 years and you're gonna get burned at the stake yeah yeah uh, yeah a smartphone would be would be witchcraft yeah if you were looking at it that like yeah. you, the advanced mathematics you can do on it alone <laughs> yeah two plus two well, equals four ah. it's always fascinating to me how technology can be lost right um calculus being one of them concrete is another uh flamethrowers apparently perfect example of that is a uh, great fire i mean yes it was uh it was something that it would just the more water you put on it the more it burned we still haven't really figured out how to do that the closest thing we have is napalm mm-hmm. and i mean yeah but yeah it, and it it kind of explores the the concept of lost technology and whenever the the main character kind of who who grew up on again he's, he's the main character so of course he's the alien um yeah grew up riding dragons and using what they call elect or what what i call electron displacers which essentially is a teleporter um, yeah and all of this radiation based technology and then he comes to earth and he's never even seen a dog before so the first time he sees a dog, he's absolutely yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Like he, he's looking at his reflection in, in, he's looking at his reflection in a car window and this dog comes up and like terrifies him. Cause he's, he's never seen a dog, even though he's gone toe to toe with the space version of a death claw for all of you yeah, fallout yeah. fans out there, but the dog <laughs> terrified him cause he'd never seen it before. And I had it be a basset hound, which we all know are like the droopiest least aggressive looking dogs ever but just kind of do explore that i the whole coming from a different world and seeing something that is one that is alien so and then two the reason why i was looking at the car is because they don't really have them on his world it's an ancient it is a beyond ancient technology because Mm. they have teleporters everywhere or if they don't have a teleporter they've got ships like actually whenever whenever i submitted the screen the screenplay for the book for a competition the guy who judged it said it was a mix between the man of steel and he-man and and so the best like kind of one-to-one comparison that i make is kind of like that scene on krypton at the beginning of man of steel where there are no cars but everyone goes around the ships or on winged creatures and that's given I wrote this way before the Man of Steel came out, so it just so happened to be very, very similar. Because um, I wrote this back in 2004 is whenever I started yeah, this, yeah. and it's it it's just kind of fun to do that reverse exploration. This concept of reverse exploration could yield a lot of fruit in a world building context. We tend to create a fish out of water scenario where someone is familiar with Earth as it is now is displaced in a new place and has to learn about. The trope is commonly used, it turns up everywhere. Think man out of time, like Fry from Futurama. The ability to show an unfamiliar world through familiar eyes 
provides a good tool that an author can use to explain the world around them. It's an exposition device. It provides a bridge to connect the audience to the setting. What we have here is a reversal of that trope, and we're seeing some dramatic irony come out of it. The fact that the main character doesn't know what a car is or that a basset hound isn't dangerous. This is a fish out of water sort of story. You have a character whose world is vastly different from our own, who is now encountering a series of things that we would find pretty normal. There's a lot of potential dramatic irony where the audience knows something the character doesn't, that basset hounds are harmless. But it also allows for some interesting world-building opportunities to better describe the place from which the character originates. This sort of comparison can provide a character-driven sense of world-building where we learn about another setting purely by the original character's interpretations of that world which exist outside the visitant's eyeline. At this point, I wanted to find out more specifics. How does this reverse-engineered approach to world-building practically work? We began to discuss language and the way contrasts can be drawn between cultures, even with the words we use. So in conversation, in book one that takes on complete place on the alien planet, Boron, whenever people speak, they don't use a single con contraction. Yeah. So they, did, they didn't grow up saying did, they said did not or wouldn't, yeah. would not. The, the only contractions are when they're one, when they're saying somebody's name, so like Disa Ani, who's one of the characters, D-I-S-A apostrophe A-N-I, it's all one word though, or whenever they're referring to something that belongs to somebody. So it's really just showing ownership. So it's not even really t a, a contraction. So like when they speak until a very specific event happens that only affects a certain individual for a specific reason, not going to go into it, going to keep it super super vague because uh want to avoid spoilers but yeah they don't speak in contractions and then when connor comes to earth and reactivates the dormant baronian genes that have been growing in humanity which causes people to develop abilities there is a character that is known as the emissary and emissaries are like a class on boron that are their they're the librarians so they're the keepers of the knowledge and it's it's less like, oh, hey, here's a book of knowledge. It's more of, I have physically absorbed the knowledge and the history of the planet inside myself. And so all of these characters that are human, that whose abilities have developed, they're all talking normally. And then this one person who, before her abilities manifested, before the, the I call it the pulse, because it's a wave of energy that connor makes when he hits the planet in the chapter before her abilities manifest she talks normally and the second her abilities manifest because she's more baronian than not and hasn't had the that specific influence emplaced on her her contractions go away and so she doesn't speak in contractions at all for um at least through book four yeah so it's kind of wild yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's it's that that then is a uh, is sort of a, a component of their of their otherness in the setting, and um, yeah, yeah. No, that's kind of fascinating. I um, yeah. I think I think with that, there's there's tons of room to sort of to sort of begin exploring uh, the Barodians and and in, in witnessing sort of that that contrast with humanity and seeing like where it is are there are there any other like sort of social social cues or faux pas that get like 
mistaken or kind of missed or misunderstood uh, throughout the process of it. Well, Bronians don't shake hands. They do a yeah. lot more of the like hand on the shoulder. Um, so like when when Connor first comes to Earth, he does a lot of hand on the shoulder, but he's doing it during like rousing speeches and trying to be like inspiring. So it's not brought up as being weird, except for with one guy who um, he's he's a little more rough and tumble than everyone else. So he's like, why do you keep touching me? Don't t- yeah. stop touching. Why why are you touching me? Stop touching. Um, so like there, there are uh, little things, but like, um, one of the things that I wanted to keep and wanted to show is kind of that connects humanity with this alien race that that can be a bridge for Connor whenever he's technically alone on this world is, um, the Bronians have a celebration called the festival of life, which is, it celebrates when the, the survivors and the people who were affected by the plague being sent away because it saved the rest of the planet. Um, and so it's a lot of out late drinking, dancing, uh, but it, it's not like, it's not like, wahoo, party! It's more of like a literal festival where there's a bonfire, there are, uh, oh, there are, are people selling like, in one of the uh, in one of the chapters, there's a, a person selling the equivalent of like a, a space shish kebab um, yeah. or a, a turkey leg or some stuff like that. And um, it like was a space kebab idea. <laughs> the, the space, yes. You know, I, I I might I might go back and rename it before release. This is a space <laughs> kebab. Um, but it was it was really inspired by there's a um, Swedish event called Valborg. Um, which yeah. is the celebrating of the burning of the witches. And um, it's just, it, it's an excuse for people to get drunk and dance around a giant fire bonfire. And that's essentially what it is. So when. That's wild. It's so macabre. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, so, yeah. and I, so you grew up in England. I went to high school in Sweden. So my first time being introduced to alcohol was at Valborg. And they're like, Hey, by the way, we're going into the middle of the woods to dance around a fire here. Have a whole bunch of vodka. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh and so um like a lot of what inspired more of the grounded version of of the Bronian culture is some of the more what would be considered quote unquote cultish parts of the Swedish society. And so like whenever he lands, the first people he runs into, he actually lands he lands in Utah, but he, for reasons, ends up in uh, in Sigtuna, which is where I went to high school. Um, and I primarily did that as a tip of the hat to where I went to high school. And so he he meets half of his team is Swedish, and so yeah. that that instantly kind of creates that ground for him because that society is very similar to as far as like the way that they celebrate and how natural and like how one with nature the swedes are it's very similar to how the bronians are with their world but while the swedes are are like that because sweden's a country the bronians have to do that because their planet is harsh and if they don't live with the planet the planet will kill them while in some ways my initial question was driving at the notable differences between his given settings one being earth and the other being boron What I found interesting were the similarities. 
When using this configuration of the trope, it might be more interesting to talk about what your dewatered fish is drawn to, rather than what surprises them. While we have a character drawn to a Swedish affinity for nature, we note that he comes at it from a different perspective. You could imagine how their traditions might diverge. I can see moments where a Swedish character might be shown cherishing the beauty of a sunrise over a windswept tundra and admired the rich visual and cool touch of the air. A Baronian might see a jagged mountain as an invitation to climb and celebrate the savage power of the nature that surrounds him. While both these cultures would have much to talk about in their appreciation of the same thing, they might have nuanced differences that can be explored in dialogue or approaches to problems. I think this can be a useful way to explore this Baronian character's contrasting setting by exploring what unites them, what makes these two areas similar. There's a saying, same, same, but different, and that applies well here. At this point, I wanted to ask a little more detail on how Ross wove Baronians into Earth culture and how he leveraged Earth's history to build a richer history for his Earth in the books. It does take place in the modern day. And then with a side story, it's going to be a short. It's going to actually kind of go follow Zero, the, the bad guy, through the changing eons of human history and his roles that he played in them. So yeah. from and this is, again, this is sort of a side story, but it still ties into history where you get to see, because I, I, th I thought that was just too too great of a world building opportunity to pass up is to see humans develop alongside a Baronian who essentially is cursed where he can't die um, and who is highly malevolent and how he steered human development throughout throughout history. Yeah. So he like turns up and like invents Facebook. Uh, no, no, that's the lizard people. That's the lizard oh, people who have been to Facebook. You know, you look through human history, you know, it's Nazis marching along in, uh, in Nuremberg or whatever, and you have this guy like, somewhere in the photographs, like kind of just showing up. Oh. I, I can kind of just imagine that. Oh, did it? When, when, so in, in, when Connor first comes to Earth and he's trying to convince people, hey, I'm telling the truth, he actually, yeah. he's actually like, look through history. This is what this guy looks like. Use facial recognition through history you'll find him and boom he's at the right hand of hitler big oh, surprise yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. naturally yeah yeah where, where else where else would he be um yeah yeah no that's kind of wild it's um so like in introducing in introducing this character then to uh to earth and and sort of the concept that you're playing with really here is you have somebody who for for all intents and purposes looks human enough to pass for human right and is arriving in earth they come from a world where effectively a lot of a lot of what we would understand stand to be like mythical creatures like dragons and, and presumably some sort of atlantis myth and unicorns and all kinds of stuff like uh, yeah um actually one of the fun things about world building to, to kind of go back and touch what you said on about did you find the your world building expanding as you were having him interact with humanity uh, yeah. yeah um i i was like you know what well how how funny would it be if, you know, because Baronians being on Earth is a very new concept. How funny would it be if, like, Dracula was actually a Baronian that went through, like, an occultic ritual during a war 
to turn into yeah. a monster to, to defeat like the dragons because there's a big dragon war at the beginning of Baronian culture um, yeah. and it was either it was one of those the Baronians were the new species the dragons were previous owners of the planet and it was an us or them fight and there is a dragon that is a planet pillar on the world that is like the way I describe him he's like the the, the size of Mount Everest and then uh, I was like you know what whoa it would be kind of funny if like essentially Dracula ends up being like a good man who he knows he's turning into a monster. So he's like, you know what? I need to get off this world. And so his affliction that makes him want to feed. Cause originally he starts as like an energy vampire. Cause that's how the Baronians naturally are. They absorb latent radiation. Um, yeah. And that gives them extreme power. But again, genetics, some are more powerful than others, but hit the the spell that affected him would eventually turn him into kind of like a Darth Nihilus where he could just sap the life force of a planet um, until he figures out, oh, hey, blood's a good substitute. Um, and so his his will or his desire to not hurt his people is what kick off kicks off their space race. Uh, yeah. Because they're like, well, we got to get him a ship that'll get him off planet. We don't believe in execution. So, and he didn't do anything wrong. So let's, let's find a ship. And so that, that kind of kicks off uh, their space race, which puts them light years above everybody else in the te uh, technologically in, um, in the galaxy because they were kind of forced to go from, you know, horseback to spaceships in about, 30 years so oh, yeah. to speak um and and so like that that was also a fun part of world building and then having it where connor runs into dracula for the first time on earth and dracula tries to bite him only to realize that he just he literally just bit his king and he's like oh goodness i'm so sorry um yeah. but it was yeah it was kind of fun filling out the world that way as well um using monsters or or characters from our mythology and figuring out a way to to have them fit and give them a reason to be so to speak yeah no i like that yeah combing through history and finding different elements and going oh well where how what would be what would be a good what would be the true story behind this you know yeah. how would how did we arrive at that adapted myth? At this point, I wanted to get a better sense of how Ross adapted his setting to better tell his story. While I was interested in the setting particularly, I wound up finding out more about the character and Ross's experiences that helped inform the development of his protagonist. This process led to the development of different world elements to accommodate for his character's backstory. How someone might understand a place without truly understanding it. To have the book smarts is not the same as having a full understanding of this new environment and its people. Whenever I was developing him, I was like, you know what? I want him to be able to interact with humanity and not be, not be a grunt. I want, I want there to be like a spark of, not necessarily genius, but a spark of adaptation about him. And so um, I, whenever I went back and rewrote, I rewrote him as... Yeah, he was a soldier, but only because he he was literally born to be that station. Firstborn royalty or royalty males, all of them become soldiers. He didn't have a choice. But 
his his guilty pleasure is he sneak into the library he'd sneak into the away from the soldier academy it's called something different into the scholarly academy break into their archives and just study and he'd do a lot of studying on humanity because he found humanity very interesting and so like when he comes to earth he's got a lot of book smart humanity but it's from a historical kind of unbiased perspective even though some of that that information is as recently as the 70s um and really anything after the 70s they don't have very records so whenever he comes to earth he's it's like if you played the spider-man game on ps5 a whole lot and like knew got to the point where you knew the layout of new york but then you actually went to new york for the first time and you're like i know what i'm doing here but this is really different um, kind of that kind of situation. And that way it could make him a lot more relatable um, because he he was born out of my culture shock of within 12 hours of being in a foreign country for the first time, I was in a boarding school. Yeah. Um, and that boarding school, you only got to go home on certain weekends. You had to stay home most weekends uh, or you had to stay at the school most weekends. And then you had like two weekends a term um that you you could choose whether or not to go home or stay at the school uh and so it was it was largely in like the year leading up to it we did uh oh, we did uh oh my gosh rosetta stone we did a lot of research about the uh about the oh about the country about the people um yeah all that other stuff and then when you go there it's one of those I, I know, but just from a book perspective, I, I, I don't, this is, I am totally lost here. I know what's going on, but I'm still totally lost here. And that's kind of what I wanted to have for Connor because he was my outlet in high school to help cope with culture shock and, and all of the stuff there. Culture shock can be like genuinely psychologically upsetting like it is like very very difficult it can feel extremely isolating all right that's cool so uh look where can we find your stuff and where's uh what what's what's the new thing that's coming out? uh this series is called birthright go on amazon google search my name ross bazell you'll find my book so if you go to rossbazell.com that has all of my books on it. It's got a link to my uh, newsletter, which I am not very, I'm not very consistent with. But sign up because I am going to be doing short story give short story giveaways, bestiary giveaways. Whenever I'm able to start actually doing um, merch, I'm gonna. It's gonna go up there first before anywhere yeah. else. Um, but yeah, rossbazell.com. You can find all of my stuff. Um, Birthright will be releasing October 5th, which is a Thursday. You can find it on Amazon, and then shortly thereafter, you'll be able to find it on rossbazell.com. So that about does it for this discussion. Let's wrap up with some key takeaways. One, don't be afraid of a good trope once in a while. Fish Out of Water, as it's used by Ross Bazell, serves as a great tool to explain your setting in a way that focuses on character growth and development, hitting two birds with one stone. Two, reverse engineering a setting can be effective. Utilize opportunities where appropriate to further expand your settings through use of your characters. 
I hope you'll go and check out Ross's new book. It's actually out right now and available for purchase via Amazon or on Ross's site, rossbazell.com. There'll be a link in the show notes. If this was useful to you, please let us know by reviewing us on your favorite podcatching app. It helps others find us as well as letting us know we're on the right track. If you want to come hang out with us, we would like to formally extend the invitation to join us on our Discord server where we talk all kinds of world building, exchange memes, and sharpen skills. So, for Ross, this is James. Thank you for listening to the Worldcraft Club podcast. Catch you next time. Why, why are you touching me? Stop touching